so we are wrapping up our series today uh, on the culture wars and um, wanted to give you just a little bit of background where we've come from and where we're heading to. And yeah, that right there, right there, there we go. And because um, I, I mean, maybe I could try it without notes, but we'll just see. Um, and so uh, on the first three weeks of this series, what we did was to identify kind of wh- what the war is. What are people warring about? And we identified on one side uh, male dominance and male superiority. And then the opposite pendulum swing, we talked about feminism. And we saw how these two um, are not what the Bible uh, prescribes, but rather the Bible prescribes that complementarian middle where we have male and female roles, uh, men and women created in the image of God, equal in the sight of God, but that equality does not mean sameness. Um, and we talked about how the Bible prescribes distinct roles for men and for women, and we taught on that. We saw what the Bible has to say of what those roles are, and so we call those the complementarian middle between the dominance on the one side and feminism on the other side. And then the last two weeks, and then again today, we're talking about, well, how do we preserve that biblical worldview moving forward? And so that's why we talked about two weeks ago, your kids and their education, and then last week, your kids and their technology. And then today, we want to talk about the subject of religious liberty or religious freedom. Our text comes from uh, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 11 and 12 together. I'm going to ask if you would to stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. This is the beginning part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. And here's what Jesus has to say, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may be seated. All right, well, I want to, in talking about religious liberty or religious freedom, we'll come to that text a little bit later in the sermon, but in talking about religious liberty, uh, we're really talking about freedom. And so I want to just give us an idea of what freedom is. Os Guinness, he's a uh, theologian, he's a cultural commentator, and Os Guinness defined freedom this way. He said, freedom is not the freedom to do what you want. Rather, freedom is the freedom to do what you ought. Freedom is the freedom to do what you ought. In other words, I can't just walk into a grocery store and help myself to a bunch of groceries and then walk out of the store without paying. That's not freedom. That is theft. That's what that is, right? And so we have to have some prescribed behaviors, some prescribed boundaries, some limits to this thing that we call freedom. Otherwise, we're not living in a civil society. Otherwise, we're living in the midst of anarchy. Um, These constraints of some kind of human behavior need to be put in place, some agreed upon limits uh, for human behavior that allows citizens to prosper, that allows citizens to live without fear. Um, And so this is why Guinness says that freedom is the freedom to do as you ought. Um, The problem is, who decides what those limits are? Who decides what those constraints are on my human freedoms? Who decides what the boundaries are of human behavior? Well, if I'm a believer, if I'm a Christian, then I turn to the B-I-B-L-E, right? I look to God's word because God's word represents truth uh, in written form. That's what God's word is. I don't have to wonder what God thinks. I don't have to wonder how it is that I'm supposed to live. The Bible clearly spells out what is right what is wrong, and it tells me how I'm supposed to live my life, and it's right there on the pages of Scripture. Again, that's if I'm a believer, but the culture has largely pushed aside biblical values, has largely pushed aside the Bible as, a, as the ultimate resource or a final authority on all matters, and so because of that, the, Bible, or the, the culture is looking toward 
uh, has become secular, culture is now looking inward. They're looking toward themselves. And so what we have out there is a philosophical system that some would refer to as humanism. And humanism basically is, I am the arbiter of my own truth. I decide how I want to live. I decide what's right and wrong. And so I become uh, basically my own moral compass. Um, again, the problem with that is, um, how do we live in a society where everybody's just doing whatever they think is right for them to do? And so what society does is it develops certain cultural norms, uh, certain behaviors that society will tolerate, that we can put up with. And so we just kind of, those aren't written down. It's more nebulous. Um, it's kind of a moving target. And so society, um, so if, if, those, if, an, if a behavior is introduced into a society where cultural norms are what is directing morality rather than something static that's outside of us, like the scriptures, where cultural norms are what's guiding society, then, that be, then morals become a moving target, right? Then some new behaviors can emerge on the scene and that those new behaviors can then become adopted by society and become part of that cultural norm. And so that's what we see happening in the world today. Y'all follow me so far? Just kind of a heady morning here this morning. I know, just hanging with me. All right, so two guys, they walk into a bakery, right? And they want for me to bake a wedding cake for them. And so I'm left with a decision of, am I going to bake a cake for these two guys and for their wedding? And so because I'm a Christian, perhaps I may feel like that's a violation of my conscience. I may feel like I'm being complicit in this union when the Bible says that this union is immoral, is wrong. And so I'd be happy to sell them a cake. I say, I'll sell you a donut, I'll sell you a cake, I'll sell you a pie, I'll sell you anything you want, but I can't sell you a wedding cake because in doing so, I feel like I would be complicit in this same-sex union. Now, the state has a decision to make, and the, the question that the state's going to ask is, is that discrimination? You know what? It is discrimination. Absolutely, it's discrimination. We discriminate all the time for all sorts of reasons. I was walking into the striplings yesterday, and there was a sign on the door that said, no shoes, no shirt, no service. That's discrimination. What do you mean that I can't walk? Well, because those are our rules, and we discriminate against people who walk into the store with no shoes, with no shirt on, They'll get no service. Same thing if somebody comes to me, they want to be hired for a job. I don't like the way that they're dressed. Maybe they're not dressed very modestly, and I think that's just not going to work in our setting. And so for that reason, I discriminate against them on the, on the way that they're dressed. And so I don't hire them. For example, maybe somebody comes into a bank, and I'm a loan officer there. And I know that this person has very loose morals. I know that they're not somebody who's very stable in their life. And because of that, I think to myself, you know what? I don't think I want to make a loan to this person because their life seems to be bouncing around all over the place. They're not a very stable individual. And because of that, I discriminate against them. I don't give them a loan. So we discriminate against people all the time for all sorts of reasons. So the bakery shop owner has refused service to someone on the basis of sexual orientation. He hasn't refused service across the board, but for this one specific issue, because he feels like it's a violation of his uh, religious convictions, he chooses not to give service to these people. Now the state has decided, uh, now, this, now the state has to decide, well, that is discrimination, but does that discrimination place an undue burden on, on, this, on this couple? Like, can they not go down the road and get a cake from somebody else? And so that's the question that the state has to ask. Do these people have access to somebody to bake them a cake somewhere else? Um, or is this the only cake shop in town? Is the only cake shop in the county? that will service these people? And the answer to that question is no. Because living in America today, where these behaviors have become the cultural norm, has become part of our society, there's somebody in town, there's somebody in the county, there's somebody in the surrounding area that will bake a cake for this couple 
and so they can have equal access. Now, the question that the couple has to ask, and a lot have asked this, is am I just going to live and let live? Am I going to say, you know what? This fella has religious convictions that are causing him to not want to bake a cake for us. I'm sorry you feel that way, right? But I'm just going to agree to live and let live, or am I going to turn toward lawsuits? Am I going to turn toward militantism? Am I going to try and squash this guy? Am I going to force him to bake me a cake? In most cases, it's important to note that, in most cases, people choose to live and let live. I'll just go down the road, I'll get a cake from somebody else, and that'll be, sorry you feel that way, right? So, however, there are activists out there who are not content to live and let live, but, um, but what they want to do is to change the minds of Americans. And if they can't change the minds of Americans, then they want to use the force of the law to coerce certain behaviors, to coerce certain uh, providing services, and if those services aren't provided through the coercion of the law, then uh, if, if their services aren't capitulated, then what happens is we're going to hit you with heavy fines. Uh, we're going to run you out of business. And so we do see that happening across our country. In other words, bake me a cake or else. Now, the judiciary branch of our government has gotten involved in this, and the question still remains through these court cases, will the state, through the judiciary, impose or coerce certain behaviors, coerce certain services, irregardless of a person's religious views and convictions? Will the state force compliance where deeply held religious beliefs are at stake? You say, Gordon, isn't that what the First Amendment is for? For protecting my religious freedoms? Well, that's a great question. Let me show you what the First Amendment says. It says, Congress shall, uh, shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's the first right, if you would, of human citizens, of human beings, uh, according to our Constitution, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, let me tell you how the courts are beginning to reinterpret that statement. And this is seen as just from a, from a Washington Post article I ran across about a year ago, that in our immigration system, that First Amendment has been rewritten to say this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or the freedom of worship. And when people going through immigration classes, that's the statement that they read, that they will not, that Congress, nope, or prohibiting the freedom of worship. And so that's how the courts, that's how activist judges, not all judges, that's how activist judges are beginning to reinterpret the First Amendment, that it really only has to do with what happens in here on Sunday morning, but how you live outside of this place, in the marketplace, the other six days of the week, that the government has a right to intrude, to coerce certain behaviors, uh, certain uh, services. So in other words, you can say and do what you want in here, but that the government is going to force us, force people to violate their consciences, uh, if that's the case, with regard to religious matters. Um, in other words, these activist judges have said that all the First Amendment does is to protect what you say and do in church on Sunday, but the other six days of the week, you have to play by the majority rule. Okay? Again, this isn't all judges. These are a few. They are sparse at most, but the threat is very real. I'll give you, for instance, in New Mexico, a wedding photographer, uh, this is back, going back to 2007, 
the case that was litigation carried on for a number of years. But in New Mexico, a wedding photographer was sued um, and had to pay a very heavy fine because she did not want to capitulate for a same-sex wedding. She didn't want to take photography for a same-sex wedding. And here's what the, uh, the, the opinion of the court's ruling, um, here's what Dr. Justice Richard Boson had to say about the ruling of the court against the photographer. He said, Elaine Huguenin and her husband, those are the two proprietors of the uh, photography business, are compelled by law. Here's what we're doing. We are compelling you by law to compromise the very religious beliefs that inspire their lives. Let me read that to you again. This is in the court's opinion of the court case ruling. He said, uh, the, the Huguenins are compelled by law to compromise the very religious beliefs that inspire their lives. He went on to say they are free to think, they are free to say, they are free to believe whatever it is that they want. They may pray to the God of their choice, but in the more focused world of the marketplace of commerce, they must channel their conduct, he said. This is the price of citizenship, end of quote. In other words, the state is going to force you to do what you, by religious convictions, don't want to do. And if you don't comply, then the state is going to force you to shut down. That's what he's saying. My point in all this is that what's happening in the courts is a new kind of puritanism, a new kind of puritanism. Social justice warriors on the left don't want just equal access. Civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s, friends, was all about equal access under the law. That's, that was their argument. The argument today is you've got equal access. Somebody in town will bake you a cake right, or take pictures of your wedding. Um, <clears throat> the issue that they want is not equal access. What they want um, is acceptance. What they want is vindication. Again, this is not everybody. This is not most people. These are activists on the left. What they want is the eradication of certain biblical values and those who espouse them. And they want for your children and for my children to accept their values and to embrace them. What they want, in a nutshell, is conformity. They don't want religious liberty. They want religious conformity. That everybody agrees with the majority opinion out there that these views, that these values are what everybody's going to go by. <clears throat> I mentioned a new kind of Puritanism. You say, Gordon, those Puritans, I thought they were like really good bibliocentric, uh, Bible-believing Christian people, right? So, I mean, who, what, what are we talking about here? Well, you're right. The Puritans were very, had a prescription for how they thought human conduct, all, what it all looked like, how you ought to live your life. And they were, um, in fact, they were kicked out of Europe because they were persecuted for religious reasons. They were, but when they got here to the United States, it's an amazing thing. They were so hyper about their version of how Christianity ought to be lived out in the everyday life that when some Quakers moved into their territory in the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony, they tried to kick the Quakers out. Think about that for a second. You just left Europe because of religious persecution. Now you're here in the Americas and you don't want anybody into your territory, right? To the extent that uh, in the mid-1600s, they threatened the Quakers that we're going to cut your ear off if you don't conform to the Quaker way of life, I mean, to the uh, Puritan way of life. And the Quakers said, I'm sorry, we can't do that. So they cut their ear off. And then they came back a few weeks later, cut their other ear off, flogged their women. And in 1659, two Quaker men were hanged 
because they would not leave the Puritan territory. Uh, the pilgrims were no better. Uh, the pilgrims when in Plymouth County ran the Jews out of Plymouth County. Not a whole lot of religious liberty and religious tolerance. Again, they had just experienced persecution on the other side of the, bay, on the, other side of the pond. Here they are coming over here, and they're doing the exact same thing. Catholics settled a territory for Catholics called Maryland, named after the Virgin Mary. That's where that, that state got its name. And they did this because the Protestants wouldn't allow any Catholics into the Protestant territory. And it's on those grounds, it's against that backdrop that the framers of our Constitution wrote those words, Congress shall make no law establishing or, or for the establishment of religion and for the prohibiting of the freedom of freedom. Yeah, you, you know the statement. Anyway, I've read it too many times this week. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In other words, Congress looked at the situation on the ground and said, y'all are killing one another, like literally. You're just at one another's throat. These are Christians, right? At one another like this, saying, no, you got to live this way. No, you got to live this way. And they just couldn't get along together. And so Congress said, look, we're going to step in as the referee. And we're going to say that, that we can't continue like this. Uh, we've got to have a civil society. And so uh, people need to be allowed to live the way that they want to live when it comes to religious matters, to matters of religious conviction. In other words, if we're going to have a civil society where we can pursue life, liberty, and happiness, then the government has to protect the religious liberties of the few against the tyranny of the many. And sadly, in America, the tyranny of the many is what Christians are now up against. It's a new kind of Puritanism. It's a conform or pay a heavy um, okay, well, that's our treatment of this topic for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question, what difference does all this make to my life, right? You say, Gordon, I mean, that sounds like an issue for the courts, that sounds like an issue for legislators, um, and I know how those folks are. They'll say one thing to you, and then they go up to Washington, and they do something totally different. So what difference does any of this make to me? What, do you, what, what even can I do about this? Well, let's talk about that. Um, if things keep going the way that they're going in our society today, and if leftist activists and activist judges keep pressing fines and penalties and lawsuits, we are just seeing the tip of the iceberg of the litigation that's on its way. Either the Supreme Court is going to decide that the free exercise of religion has nothing to do with how you live your life the other six days of the week and is confined only to where you worship in church, or uh, they're going to have to say, look, it includes the whole scope of life, and if that's the case, then there's going to be litigation upon litigation uh, for everything you can possibly imagine. And people who, who work for civil government alone could be forced to do things that violate their consciences. And in those cases, again, the court's going to have to see that. Uh, and this could just go on forever and ever and ever. Um, again, if conformity is what the left is after, um, and they're going to impose these limits, um, then you know, where's the good news? right? Well, let me tell you where the good news is. I got two things for you. First of all, the first bit of good news is, and hearing all this, is that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. That's the first piece of good news. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, at the, that at the name of Jesus, one of these days, sometime, sometime in the future, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, referring to even those that are in hell, even the demons 
will bow their knees to the Lord Jesus, and as one voice, all of creation, all of the universe will say that Jesus, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, Jesus wins. Friends, I would much rather be on the losing side of things in the short term uh, so that I can be on the winning side of things for eternity. Jesus wins. That's the first piece of good news. Second piece of good news that I give you is to remind us that those things seem bad, and though the future seems uncertain for Christians living in America, our lot concerning religious liberty is actually quite good. When you consider religious liberty across the globe, like outside of America and other parts of the world, I mean, religious liberty is a rare commodity in the world. Uh, a rare commodity. Um, for example, if you live in North Korea and you are found with a Bible, you will be shot. If you live in North Korea and you are a Christian, you will be thrown in jail. More than likely, you'll be tortured there and that's where you'll die. Uh, in Yemen and Jordan and in Iran and other Muslim countries like that, it is illegal to assemble for Christian worship. In Egypt, Christians are shuttled to uh, certain zones where they can live. They're not even allowed to live amongst the uh, population of the Egyptian people, except in these certain territories, and their freedom of movement is restricted across the country. In Egypt, Christian churches are often burned. Uh, their businesses, Christian businesses, are boycotted. Uh, people who are Christians there uh, suffer harassment and suffer hate all the time. It's not so bad here as some people would like to believe. Personally, I don't ever see the day coming when I myself will be required to perform a service for a same-sex couple or that our church will be required to hire uh, people who, are, who don't agree with our beliefs. Personally, I don't ever see the day coming when what we say in here, when what we teach in here is censored. We have too long a history in this country of religious freedom, of, religious, of freedom of speech, and because of that, I don't ever see that censorship making its way all the way into what takes place here on Sunday morning. However, I do see the day when Catholic hospitals are forced to perform gender transition surgeries. You say, what are you talking about? Friends, that's already a law in our country. It just was put on hold in 2016. On New Year's Eve night, 2016, the nuns were huddled together and worried because the Obamacare uh, law, which was, was going to go into force the next morning, that would force Catholic hospitals to do gender transition surgeries, and that all those relevant health care workers around that, uh, that, that procedure would also be required by law to, um, to, to do that surgery. And so for the time being, the issue is tabled. But Obamacare has not been repealed. The law is still active in our land. All it's going to take is for enough people who are in support of that law to get into Congress, to get into the presidency, and that law will be revived again. That day is coming. Um, what will Christian colleges do when because of their beliefs, because of what the Bible teaches, and they won't hire certain people on the basis of biblical values, and the government says, well, we're going to pull all government funding. We're going to pull all federal dollars from your school. And the there's plenty of people out there that are already threatening these kinds of things. What will those Christian colleges do? Will they go ahead and hire people uh, that don't conform with biblical morality? Will they change what they teach? Will they be censored in their classrooms as to what they can teach? My point is this. What we do and say in here will largely remain untouched. But what we do and say the other six days of the week 
Well, that's already under siege. And so what's the way forward? Well, I got two things for you, and then we'll be done. Number one is to promote an atmosphere of dialogue. To promote an atmosphere of dialogue. You know, the culture seems hell-bent on its version of toleration, which is really no toleration at all. By toleration, the culture means you accept us or else. That doesn't exactly sound like toleration to me. It's the opposite of it. Uh, that's conformity. Toleration, by definition, implies, think about this, toleration, by definition, implies disagreement. It means that there's two parties, or maybe a hundred parties, that have a different view of a particular issue. And so if we're going to be tolerant, then that means that we allow all of those different voices, all those different viewpoints. I talked about this two weeks ago in your kids, their education. Remember we talked about how we need to bring debate back into the classroom. We need to allow for a, pre a liberal arts education. That's what that is, to allow for a, a presentation of all points of view to be brought to the table. But again, that's not what we're seeing. Um, and so uh, we need to bring healthy, healthy debate, a civil exchange back. It means that we agree to treat one another with equal value, and the only way that we can do that and still live in relative harmony with people that we disagree with is to promote an atmosphere of dialogue, promote healthy debate. That way, everyone gets to live how they see best, including Christians, and, and the Catholics don't have to establish their own territory, and the Quakers get to keep their ears, okay? So that's what we get when we promote a healthy dialogue. Um, the way everyone, I'm sorry, it doesn't mean that one side gets to win, and that's conformity, that's totalitarianism, the opposite of toleration. And, the, and so the primary way that we as Christians can promote an atmosphere of dialogue is to do what perhaps we have never done before, and we've probably never even thought of doing before, and that is to be willing to defend the rights of religious, or re, of religious freedom of people who do not share our Christian faith. Here's what David Platt, pastor of McLean Bible Church, up in Washington, D.C., and a, a prolific writer has to say on this issue. Um, David Platt says, I gladly stand for religious liberty alongside people who do not believe the gospel that I do. He said, I don't believe that I'll be in heaven with those folks, but I'll gladly go to jail for them here on earth. That is an atmosphere where religious liberty is upheld, where all voices have an opportunity to speak. Because if we only want Christianity, then we become... Uh, agents of Puritanism, right? We start cutting people's ears off. We become guilty of the very same thing that we are experiencing right now in the minority in this country. And so to defend li religious liberty, we need to um, create an atmosphere of dialogue. The second way forward, and I'll end it here, is number two, to practice our private faith in public ways. To practice our private faith in public ways. When Norbu and Sunita a couple who lived in a Tibetan Buddhist village first heard the gospel. They were hesitant. Um, they knew how the elders of their community were going to receive the idea that they were thinking about Christianity. And sure enough, that's what happened. The elders came to their house, said, we've heard that you're talking to some Christians. We heard that you've been reading the Bible. And we want you to know that will not be tolerated in our community. Well, despite their apprehensions, they went ahead and jumped in with the Lord Jesus. Two weeks later, their bodies were found. They had been stoned to death. After Ian, a Somalian woman, met a Christian and began contemplating giving her life to Jesus, the Somalian people pr pride themselves in that their country is 100% Muslim. We'll not allow any Christianity there. 
Ayan knew that the cost of even considering conversion was high. She said, if my family or the people in my village found out that I was becoming a Christian, they would slit my throat. Her own family. Without question, she said, without hesitation. In the end, Ayan decided that it was worth it, and her faith in Christ forced her to flee her family to isolate herself from her friends, never to see them again. She now spends her life for the spread of the gospel among her people, but in a different region. And the stories could go on and on and on. There are thousands of them, just like these. People who pay the extreme price for the sake of the gospel. These are the kinds of people that the writer of Hebrews had in mind when he wrote Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 36. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They wore sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And the world, the world was not worthy of them. Jesus said it this way, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say falsely all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Friends, the more we practice our private faith in public ways, the more we will experience what Jesus experienced. If your goal in life is comfort, then by all means, accommodate the culture. But if your goal in life is to serve the Lord Jesus and to be true to how he prescribed for us to live, friends, then those that suffered for Christ beckon to us not to let the cost of following Jesus silence our faith. We must put into practice our private faith in public ways. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us today. We thank you for the witness and the testimony of so many who have paid the ultimate price in order to follow you. Jesus, you know how things are moving in our country, and you know the courage that the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, needs in this hour. God, may we continue to stand firm on your truth, uncompromising on essentials. Lord, we ask now as we come around this table, and reminded of your ultimate sacrifice, of your broken body and your shed blood. May we find the courage to stand for you in the public square. It's one thing inside of these walls, but God, to go from this place and to live a life that is a lighthouse unto the world, God, we know what that'll bring. And we thank you for your promise that on the other side of it all, Great will be our reward in heaven. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.